Father, we are very grateful for your word, for this place, uh, for freedom to uh, study, to learn, to grow. Uh, fill us with the strength of your Holy Spirit and help us to be all the more obedient to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, 14 begins with the plot to kill Jesus. We see his anointing at Bethany. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Jesus celebrates the Passover with the disciples. And there's a lot that we discussed uh, there. He institutes uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, predicts Peter's denial. And uh, then we come to the prayer in the garden. So we are at... Mark chapter 14, verse 32, it says, Then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. Now, interesting, because the word means crushing, okay? And it pertained to the olives uh, that were there. Uh, but Jesus is going to go through a crushing on our behalf here in the garden. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. I want you to take note of that. Um, the deep distress, you know, we've studied our way through. We're, you know, well-versed Christians. We, we understand uh, these things, but there's a depth uh, here that is very specific in these couple of phrases. Verse 34, then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Deeply distressed, exceedingly sorrowful. Combined, the way that the Greek language speaks is longing for home. Isn't that interesting? That our Lord had that mindset of, this is not where I belong I'm out of sorts. I'm uncomfortable. You know, I mean, obviously he's about to be crucified. But, you know, have you ever had that experience where you're just like, I, I, I just want to be back with my family. I just want to, I do not want to be here. I don't want to be with these people. I don't want to be in this setting. Our Lord went through that. Uh, where he, he wanted with every fiber of his being to be back in the presence of the Father and not go through what he's about to step into. He's, he's demonstrating a, a twofold weakness in this moment that's really remarkable. That longing, and secondly, this statement of stay here and watch is the sense of the need for friendship. Why would the Lord ever make himself that vulnerable? Th that he would have a dependency upon these guys. You know, I mean, for think about think about how if you're in a setting where um mentally, emotionally, however financially, however you want to do it, you're far above the setting that you're in, right? You just like you can brush it off like who cares about this place, these people, this circumstance? It's going to roll right off. You know what I'm saying? Jesus, Jesus has brought, he's emptied all of that out of himself to the place where he's 
literally saying to these guys, please don't forsake me. Please stay here with me. Please be supportive. Right? We say that. Have you done certain jobs where, you know, you can do it yourself, but it's such a help to just have somebody there with you? We say moral support, right? <laughs> this is just a, a stinky job. You wish you didn't have to do it. And just having somebody there to turn the wrench with you uh, helps. And that's where Jesus is at. He's made himself that vulnerable that he's longing for home and he's asking human beings to stay with him. Okay, look, look, you got, you got to, you got to take the Lord. Right? If Jesus was baptized, right? Clearly, you need to be baptized. Right? You're not above Jesus. Okay. If Jesus put himself in a place where he depends upon brothers and sisters, surely we need to depend upon brothers and sisters. Right. This whole lone wolf attitude that we develop sometimes out of pride. Uh, tell me it hasn't caused you to stumble before, right? Uh, I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. I don't need to depend upon anybody. I don't need to call anybody and ask them to pray for me. A and, you know, if you've grown at all, you realize you do need to. You do need to let people know your vulnerability. You do need to reach out. You do need help. Okay? If our Lord demonstrated that, surely we should follow the example. Surely we should, you know, hear what he had to say. Uh, again, this uh, thing, if you, you take the parallel gospel of Matthew chapter 26, he even says it a little more clearly in verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Stay, not just stay here and watch. Stay here and watch with me. Let, me. let me lean on you emotionally. Let me lean on you spiritually. How remarkable that our Lord would make himself vulnerable in that way. Galatians chapter 6 verses 2 and 3 say to us, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We really do need to depend upon one another. You know, if, if you have it in your mind, like I can't call them up and tell them the uh, temptation I'm presently going through, they would think so much less of me. Well, look, if you're going through that temptation, then you really are that much less. <laughs> and you really do need help right now. You really do need someone to support you. Uh, you know, that's our enemy whispering in our ear, right? Touching the pride in our heart saying, you don't need anybody else. You don't want to make this confession to anybody. You don't want to let people know you're vulnerable. Our Lord just demonstrated it to us. Stay, please stay and watch with me. My soul is, you know, distressed to the point where I'm homesick. I mean, you've got to rewind a long ways into your childhood probably to get to the place where you went to stay at somebody's house and you actually had the breakdown where you're like, I'm take me home now. Okay, that's where Jesus is at. The the full collapse. Uh, in the distress of the moment of depending on others and longing that way. I hope this encourages you. 
to, to depend upon the body of Christ, to reach out, to look at this demonstration of humility and what we do. In contrast to relying on others as the scripture encourages us to do, right? Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. T tell me you haven't worked that one out before, right? Where you just brushed everybody off and went and found a place to be alone and pursue your own self and then suffered all the consequences that come along with that. Uh, the Lord is demonstrating the need for us. 1435, he went a little further or farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, which is literally daddy. Okay, it, it, is, it is not just dad. It's, it's the, the term of endearment of a little child. Okay? When you're in Israel, you hear it a lot. And like children in the U.S., you know, they, they do that. They, they, they go, they, they have a strange influx. Dad, 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 you know, up and down. They're trying to get the attention. Mom, 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 mom. It's a weird thing kids do, right? Abba, 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 abba. Daddy is, is what the children are saying in Israel. Jesus is in that place of vulnerability, and he's saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So uh, this, this cup that he wants to pass away uh, from him is interesting um, the seven years of tribulation in the book of Revelation is God pouring out his wrath on an unbelieving world. And in particular, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, it says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of his torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. The, the cup of wrath, poured out full strength. Jesus drank that cup full strength for any of us that asked him to. Any of us that said, I want to avoid God's wrath. Please let Jesus' sacrifice be my penalty paid. Let, let it be that his having been crucified and tortured would fulfill the punishment that I deserve. Uh, interesting, interesting because Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, as Jesus comes to the cross, they give him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. Okay, Sour wine and gall 
is a very powerful anesthetic. If he had drank of that, it would have so dulled the pain of the crucifixion. I mean, he, he would have been in a stupor uh, that, of complete sedation. Uh, and he would have died much quicker. Okay, the, the suffering would have been hastened and he would have exited very, very quickly had he done that. As soon as it touches his lips and he realizes what it is, you know, he's really reduced himself to that point of being human. He spits it out and refuses to take it. Why? Because he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath full strength. He's not going to allow uh, even the cross to be diminished. He also needs his senses because there are seven statements that are going to be made from the cross that are going to be recorded in the Gospels that we need to hear, right? In particular, right, you need to hear Jesus say, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? You, you need to hear all of his statements, but you also definitely need to hear uh, it is finished, right? All of the payment is made. All of the law is completed. All things are fulfilled in Jesus' death. He needs to have his faculties. He needs to have the clarity of mind to say the things that he does. He does take a drink right at the end, but it's it's merely vinegar, if you can imagine that, soured grape juice. He takes that in to clear his throat in order that he would be able to bellow out, right? Uh, two statements, really. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, and it is finished. So he does not take uh, this drink and uh, diminish the wrath of God in his experience. He takes it full strength for you and me. Then uh, also within this statement, if there's any other way that this cut pass from me, demonstrating for the first time in eternity that Jesus Christ's will is separate from the Father's will. A, a probably in my mind the clearest separation between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. The demonstration that this is God's will, and Jesus has a different will. Jesus has a different desire in this moment. Previous to this, right, every single thing was just completely in unison. This moment, they're completely out of sync. Jesus does not want to. And I, I will once again point out to us, Hebrews tells us Jesus is our high priest. He was in all points tested just as you and I are. And we are encouraged to resist the temptations that we face, even unto bloodshed. Uh, it's, it's worded differently. It says, which of you has ever resisted unto bloodshed? Right. So we're being encouraged to resist more than we actually do, okay? And in that whole thing, it says that we don't have a high priest who's unsympathetic. He, he is sympathetic because he was in all points tested just as we are. And we can get, again, an attitude and think, well, I mean, Jesus was perfect. Jesus was God. You know, how hard was it for him? To resist temptation. His temptation right here is to walk away from the cross. Okay. 
It's it's a mirror image of our temptation. Literally, the the exact same thing in the exact opposite direction, right? You look in the mirror. Your left is on your right. Your right is on your left. Jesus, Jesus' temptation is to run away from sin. Your temptation is to run towards sin. We strongly desire that which is sinful. Jesus strongly desires to reject that which is sinful. Here in this moment, he embraces sin. Not that he sins, but he takes my sin upon himself, your sin upon himself. So, so he can sympathize with the desire to run away from God's will, right? We want to run away from God's will into sin. He wants to run away from God's will here in the moment, away from sin. He can totally sympathize with you. And when he sympathizes with you, it's humiliating, right? Because my desire is selfish, my desire is toward, right? His desire is selfless, right? He does not want to, but he will, for our sake, embrace. He will, for our sake, embrace the sin. So here, first time expressed, he wants to do something that's separate from God's will. 37, he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Before we move on, there's a very powerful key for us. Watching and praying will help us avoid temptation. It is very often through neglect that temptation takes its hold and accomplishes its will. Right? We aren't watchful. We aren't looking out. We aren't avoiding situations. We're being careless. We aren't attentive. And then we're not prayerful. Right? We, we allow ourselves circumstances. And then it leads to failure. There are two things that are always incorporated in failure and sin. Right? Desire and opportunity. You're like, yeah, well, of course. Well, the answer in Christ removes both of those things. Right? Christ, his Holy Spirit, can change your desire. He can. He does and he will. Over time, the desire gets removed. Opportunity. You can do a lot about that yourself. Right? Removing the opportunities from your lives. Uh, I've given an example. I was very young in the Lord and I had a friend call me in the middle of me being completely in the flesh and ask me, "Hey, what are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. You know, I'm going to come by your place." "Oh, okay." He comes by before the day's out. I'm in sin. Right? And it's a long time later when I realize, "Oh, that was a total setup." I was in the flesh, and here comes somebody out of my past, and I just hook, line, and sinker, right? Here I go. So the next time it happens, I'm in the flesh, and I'm two or three steps along the way, and I realize, oh, I'm headed down the same road. 
And then it's really hard to pull back and reverse and get out of the situation. And you Not because they're so mani manipulative, because I want to just continue down this direction and all the struggles. And I finally came to a place where I put a few names in my phone, programmed them in as do not answer this call. So, and then their name. Like, you can make a name this long in your cell phone, right? You know what I'm saying? So I just put do not answer. Wasn't I surprised many months later when my phone rings and I'm looking at the, this thing going, that's really weird. It says on my phone, do not answer this call. You know, here, so-and-so. And I'm literally about to press the green phone and answer when I'm like, oh, wow, I am in the flesh right now. <laughs> I'm in a terrible spot. If I answer this phone call, th this would lead to bad things. You can put barriers in place, okay? Uh, you know, desire and, and opportunity. Uh, you know, remove opportunities. Put barriers up. You know, I know a lot of people that just go around building barriers, everywhere in their life, stonewalling everything. Yeah, well, what happens when you get blindsided? you you got to pray that the Lord would change your heart so that the desire is not there. You, you need your nature to be changed so that when desire and opportunity meet, one of the two is not there, right? If, if opportunity shows up, desire is not present, you know, or if desire is there, opportunity is not present consider how that might uh, speak to you here so uh watch and pray lest you enter into temptation the spirit is indeed willing but the flesh is weak now listen right we read that the the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and and we often even say this about ourselves without realizing that what that literally says is without strength the spirit is willing, the flesh is without strength. And I, I've really thought about how do I illustrate that without strength? You know, <clears throat> we often say a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? Well, that's true. But, you know, really, if we're talking about this level of weakness, this would be like putting, you know, this massive chain, you're going to pull your friend's truck out of the ditch. And right in the middle, you know, you, you got a short piece of chain and a short piece, so you put a paper clip in there. You know, no strength. <laughs> just hit it. You know, he just drives away with a chain. There's not, it's, there's no strength. It's, it's more like the way it's described, though without strength is the idea of there is no link. Your friend's got a piece of chain, you got a piece of chain, you hook it on his truck, you hook it on your truck, you put the ends right next to one another. And then say, go ahead, hit it, and he just drives away. It's that kind of no strength, non-existent strength. The flesh has no strength. If you're approaching resisting temptation and any level of the flesh, right? If, if you're approaching this idea of I'm going to be stronger spiritually by doing ABC, whatever your plan is, the flesh has no strength, zero strength. 
It's a, it's a non-existent strength. You can't rely upon it. It must be the Spirit. You have to be filled with the Spirit. You must have God's Spirit supplying you with that strength. Right? Not by strength, not by might, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. It has to be through Him. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is without strength. Willing, but without strength. Reminds me of the Father whose child was demon-possessed. And Jesus said, this demon can be cast out if you believe, right? Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, Mark chapter 9, verse 24. If you are hearing this and thinking, I, I need strength, and I don't have strength. I don't know how. You know, I've got this thing you're telling me, and I, I need to see that overcome in my life. Uh, I don't I don't know what I'm going to do. If you've got that spot in your life that needs the strength of the Holy Spirit, you need to call out to God. You're not going to accomplish that strength. It, it will not happen. If you will call out, he will help. Okay? Uh 2 Chronicles 6:16:9 quoted it many times recently says for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. If you'll call to the Lord, he will answer you, right? If you're thinking, yeah, I've called, he didn't answer. I've knocked, right? He didn't open. I've, I've looked, I've sought, seek, and you will find. Well, glad you brought it up. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 is where that comes from. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Right? Isn't it, isn't it great to be able to bless your kids? I, I just love to be able to bless my kids. Just help them out anyway. Your loved one, your niece, your nephew, you know, the child, particularly children. When you can bless a child and they're really blessed by it, when there's a joy in their life, you know, that's a great thing. It's a, it's a really wonderful experience. And we're filthy, rotten sinners. And we know how good that is to do that, right? How much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask Him? Ask, seek, knock in the Greek tense is continuously be asking. Continuously be seeking. Continuously be knocking. You don't get to stop, right? If, if you've had that attitude, like, I knocked and the Lord didn't answer. Yeah, well, I mean, have you ever uh, done that before? You've had, like, a phone call you needed to make, right? Some confrontation or circumstance, and you call up and you let it barely ring three times and it hang up the call. I called, I called, you know. 
Sometimes people do that. Their pursuit of the Lord is as brief and as shallow as they can possibly make it so that they can somehow blame God. I called, I asked, he did not come to me. You have to continuously be asking, seeking, knocking, nonstop, the rest of your life. This is how this is going to work. Uh, oh, I, I haven't had that over you know, thing overcome in my life. I, I asked God to take it away, and it just failed. You know, that's not how it works. I, I don't have permission from my father-in-law to share this, so I'm kind of going out on a limb. And if he watches later, I hope he can forgive me. Okay. He came home from Vietnam, and he was plagued with the memories of what went on there. And he went to a Christian church, and the pastor told him that he needed to pray, and the Lord would take those dreams and those thoughts away. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen until this year. And he was plagued with really terrible dreams. And I don't know that they were connected to that whole horrific experience, but he gave his life to Christ because he prayed earnestly, continuously, and the Lord took them away. And he then knew that Jesus was the answer to his solutions. And, and he has surrendered his life to Christ. What a beautiful thing. You know, I, I think largely... You know, his daughter, my wife, praying and seeking and knocking on her father's behalf, right, for years. The Lord answered that. We don't want to sell ourselves short, is my point. I know I'm kind of exhausting this element of the study, but the Lord will answer. He will come. He will deliver. He will change us. But we have to have that heart that never stops praying, never stops seeking. Uh, you know, there are false teachers within Christianity. You know, well, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Ken Hagen. They, they say, they say, if you ask more than once, it's you that doesn't have the power and doesn't have the faith. We're commanded to pray over and over and over again. To continuously call out. Think about the examples in the scripture, right, of the woman who comes. And Jesus says, no, it's not for the dogs, the Gentiles. And she will not back off. And the Lord answers and gives and provides and heals. We need to be those people that perpetually seek, always look. 1439, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Interesting, right? He's praying the same thing more than once, inquiring of the Lord. And he returned and found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him, implying that a similar question was asked of, really, you can't stay awake, you can't pray with me for a single hour? And they stammer and stutter and make excuses, and they don't know what to say. I, I'm, I'm grateful for that being included in the scripture because I've been a doofus much along those lines. You know, I know you haven't, but I have. So pray for me. 1441. Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, 
let us be going. See, my betrayer as at, is at hand. I know that I'm very repetitive um, in my teaching. I'm going to talk about Judas again and how he is so incredibly wicked because there is this movement within our culture and within Christianity to somehow make excuses for Judas and to somehow change his character. Uh, he is wicked. The book of John says that he was a devil. Okay, words of Jesus. Uh, the scripture tell us that he, uh, twice, the devil entered Judas. Okay, and then they also tell us that Ju uh, the devil put it in Ju Judas's mind to betray Jesus. So when you listen to, you know, uh, National Geographic, and they're trying to tell you that uh, they found the gospel of Judas in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, and that, uh, you know, that uh, writing records how Jesus and Judas plotted together to have Jesus uh, betrayed, and then they, they actually had another man crucified who was a criminal who was going to be executed, and that's why they scourged him uh, to the point of uh, unrecognizable so that Jesus could leave the ministry. You know, he'd done his work, he'd done his three years, um, and that was all finished. And so Judas and Jesus plotted together, and they had this other man executed in Jesus' stead, and, and Jesus ran off with Mary Magdalene. They got married and had children. And that's where all of the royal family comes from in Europe. No, you haven't seen the Da Vinci Code? Okay. You know, the nonsense that is out there, the shenanigans that are played, the people that buy these lies as though they were true. Again, okay, here, let's run through a little bit of that. He's a betrayer. That's what the scripture calls him right here. Jesus' words, right? Notice they're written in red. My betrayer is at hand, speaking of <clears throat> Judas. I know in uh, the idea of Judas having this gospel, uh, that was written 350 years after Jesus' ministry. If you're going to listen to someone give you a historical account of George Washington, are you going to listen to someone who served with him on the battlefield, right? Took his personal notes, served as his secretary, right? Matthew, right? Are you going to listen to a firsthand account? Are you going to listen to someone who writes an account of him that completely contradicts everything else that's ever been recorded about him 350 years after his existence, right? That's when the gospel of Judas was written on a separate continent, right? You know, Nag Hammadi, Egypt versus, you know, Israel. Of course, you're going to listen to firsthand accounts, so don't be steered off course. Judas was a betrayer. Judas was wicked. Judas was a thief. Okay? Judas stole. He was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry, and he stole from Jesus' ministry continuously throughout his service to the Lord. You know, I, I have to wonder when Jesus is teaching and saying that, you know, in the end times, uh, the Lord's going to gather all the nations together. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. 
and he's going to cast the goats into hell. And the goats are going to say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? I wonder if when Jesus was teaching that, he was looking right at Judas. Right? Because he sent Judas out with his power in Judas's life to cast out demons, to heal people, to preach the gospel. Judas was a minister on Jesus' behalf. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So don't be confused and help straighten out other people's thinking if you have conversations with them. Uh, you know, I, I've literally talked, especially a younger generation, who doubt the scriptures based upon Mr. Brown's movie and book, Da Vinci Code. That's a load of nonsense. You know, by the way, Mr. Brown, I don't know if you're aware of it, but he was sued for millions of dollars because he made millions on the book and the movie. He stole all of that from another man in France. That wasn't even his own original idea. Okay? Uh, 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 Holy Blood and Holy Grail was the original book. And he, he worked with that man in France to help uh, produce that. And it was a work of fiction then. Okay, and he knew that, but then he steals most of it and writes it as though it's some kind of historic account. It's a price to pay for people who make up such lies. 1443, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. John chapter 18, verse 3 says, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, that specific Greek term is a Roman cohort. So that is at a minimum 600 very trained, heavily armed Roman soldiers. So he's got a huge detachment of Roman soldiers, and he's got temple guards and officers. Uh, with him. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Verse 44. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. Now the kiss is the standard kiss that they still use today in the Middle East, where you would approach someone if you were of that culture and you would kiss them on the left cheek and the right cheek, as they did the same uh, to you, okay? It's a standard greeting, but the idea is I'm going to kiss him repeatedly in such a way that you'll unmistakably know that this is my signal and my greeting. So, oh, oh master, left and right and, and left and right and, and left and right, you know, make a big scene. Right? Our standard greeting is the handshake. So, you know, I might walk into some place and somebody might walk up and forcibly grab my hand and shake them. So if I've given you the signal, uh, I'm going to tell you, okay, when I go in, it's going to be the guy who I, I shake his arm right off. <laughs> you know, Conger Murray, how are you? You know, just, you know, so that everybody knows, oh, this is the guy. This is the signal that he's giving. There's a few things uh, to this. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 2, reading from the New Living Translation, says, Speaking of the Messiah, prophetically telling us what he was going to be like, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us 
to him. Every description of Jesus would have been average, <laughs> plain, you know. What did he look like? Oh, he was about medium height, you know. Well, what was his build? He was, he was like medium build, you know. What, what was his, his hair length? Was it short or long? It was, it was about medium, you know. Me, me, medium. He's everything's. He's he's average, on every level. Jesus is plain, ordinary. Looks like everyone else. Uh, he you know, he's not. Well, when we go to the garden, um, you, well, there's going to be a bunch of Galilean fishermen. They'll all look very Israeli. Now, the one that is a lot taller than everybody else looks very European has blondish hair, blue eyes, and a slight glow. Okay, that's the Messiah. Right? I mean, the way that Jesus is depicted in art, uh, he, you know, in the culture, he was a total blend-in. You would have seen him, and then, you know, within an hour, if you were asked to identify him, you'd have a really hard time picking him out of the lineup. Because he just was ordinary on purpose so that nothing about his person was what attracted people to him. You think about how different the church is from that today. The church is way caught up in, oh, we've got to be a, you can't just meteor, you know, in everything we do, you've got to, I got to stand out. In such a way so that everyone takes notice. And that's encouraged. Uh, how about just the ordinary, right? Jesus opened his mouth and everybody was just awestruck with what came out of his mouth. Okay? Teaching ministry, the things that he had to say, blew everybody's minds. Right? I'm not just imagining that. The scripture records Right, that, that when Jesus got done teaching, the people were awestruck. Why? More than anything, because he taught with authority. There, right, he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and it says that people were awestruck because he taught as authority, not as the scribes. <laughs> Which implies without authority. Right? What do they mean by that? You ask the scribes, like, oh, what about divorce? I don't really know. There's a lot of opinions. You know, when we examine the scripture, you could interpret it this way or you could interpret it that way. That's how, that was their approach. Right? What, what about marriage? Well, I don't. there's a lot of opinions. What about divorce? Well, I don't know. There's a lot of opinions. What about any subject? Well, I don't know. There's a lot of opinions. That's our approach to everything. Right? That's why the lines are being drawn so firmly right now in the church. Because this is the mealy-mouthed, soft-handed approach that the church has taken of the way of the world and the opinions of men. And if you stand up and you say, no, 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 I'm standing on what the Word of God says, they will either, one, vehemently attack you, or they'll roll their eyes and criticize you. They reject soundly the word of God. It needs to be that we emulate our Lord in this. That there's a plainness about our person, but a power in our speech. 
And that power needs to come from the Holy Spirit and what he is doing in our hearts, our minds, our lives, working out through us. It's not going to be widely accepted. People aren't going to be all excited about it. Make sure that it is, in fact, what is found in your mouth. So he has this detachment of troops. He comes. He kisses him as soon as he had come, uh, Mark 14, 45. Immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, two things here. One, beginning before the Last Supper, all of the apostles start a transition that they're referring to Jesus as Kyrios, Lord, Master. And it gets very um, strong once Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all begin asking, Master, is it I? Lord, is it I? Judas goes the opposite direction at this point. And even there in that moment, he says, Teacher, is it I? He does not elevate Jesus to mastery, Lord, Kyrios, and diminish himself to servant and student, right? He brings Jesus down to rabbi, teacher, okay? There's something to note there. And you've heard people of the world irreverently sound like they're being respectful when they say, I, I really like the teachings of Jesus. I, I, he's a good teacher. Implying all he is is a teacher. Like Buddha or Muhammad, Krishna, right? Koresh. He's a teacher. No, no. He's Lord. Master. And this reference only elevates as they move forward with the apostles. So that after his resurrection, they refer to him as nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they refer to him after his resurrection. And never again, friend. Never again, rabbi. Right? He is our friend. He is our teacher. But they recognize, look, if you can rise from the dead, God, you are, okay? Lord Jesus Christ, got it. You know, I was confused. I was confused there for three years as we were tramping around and camping out and doing all the stuff we did. But, hey, you came out of the grave, so, you know, Lord Jesus Christ. Approach Jesus. Give the dramatic kissing scene. And, Rabbi, teacher, Teacher and kissed him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, same moment Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? I don't think I'd be referring to him as friend. You piece of, you know, I'd, you'd probably say something really terrible. It's a kiss. Seriously, that's how we're going down. All right. You know, Luke 22, verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? 
Are, are you serious right now? This is how, this is how you're going to betray me, right? You don't have the guts. So think about this, right? Judas in this moment is hiding. He, you know, he can deny, I didn't betray him. I just came up and greeted him. You heard me say, Rabbi, right? He does not walk up with the Roman cohort and say, fellas, over here, this is the guy. This is the man you want to arrest right here, right? He, he even in the moment, is trying to act the innocent. You know, they asked me where you were. I showed up. I just gave him a kiss. I had no idea. He's, he's still trying to cover his tracks. He's being deceptive. You betray me with a kiss? Uh, think about this, you guys. You've probably experienced this in life, right? You've, you've had people who were, you know, clearly opposed to you enough to where they walk up and they point the finger right in your face and they say whatever nasty thing they're going to, right? But you've also had people who act like, no, we're friends. And you know everyone else they're talking to. They're sinking the knife in as deep as they can. This is Judas right here. This is why no one names their kid Judas. Right? It is to be betrayer. It is to be backstabber. Now, there's just a couple names in history. People have just scratched them. You know, Jezebel. No, not using that one. You know what I'm saying? Judas, no, not interested. <laughs> you know, Judah, maybe, you know, fine. Not Judas. A very common name in these days. Judas was used regularly, abandoned here, 1446. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, look. <clears throat> Part of the reason the names are not included is that when these Gospels, some of them are written very close to when these events took place. And the persecution is very heavy on those people. So they don't include their names. It's Peter who takes his ear off. When we read later, John chapter 18, verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. And that servant's name was Malchus. The reason we have those two details included by John is Peter's already dead. So it doesn't matter if he exposes the entirety of the situation. It's also interesting to note that perhaps part of the reason that John tells us that it was Malchus is because Malchus has become a believer. It's very probable based upon church history and legend and things that we know. I mean, think about that. You're in the garden, and one of Jesus' followers swings at you, and you duck, and he clips your ear off, and Jesus steps in, stops the situation, you know, in the pitch black, probably has to say, somebody bring a torch over here. And they have to find the ear in the grass, right? How weird is that? And like pick off the grass, you know, dust that, and then put it back on Malchus's head. You know, total weird will cast speculation. I think maybe Jesus left it just a little crooked so that when Malchus later in life doubted whether that had actually happened, he could 
feel and recognize that the Lord had healed him? No, have you had the Lord heal you of some things in your life, but he left things a little crooked, left you with scarred memory that tells you Jesus worked in your life, right? Jesus fixed things, but you also got scars from the damage, and, and they remind you that Jesus worked in your life, that Jesus repaired you, okay? Again, not biblical, just will cast speculation from experience. I've had the Lord leave things slightly out of kilter so that I have to go, no, that's right. Jesus did touch me there. Jesus did restore things. Jesus did heal my life, did put me where I am today. Luke chapter 22, verse 36. Uh, Jesus had said to them, uh, now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Right? Sent you out without backpack, without sword, without money bag, without any of these things. And I took care of you, but now I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. So sell your outer garment and buy yourself a sword. Somewhere between Jesus telling Peter, this in Luke chapter 22, 36, and now where we are in the garden, Peter has stopped by a sword shop and picked up a sword. You know, unfortunately, um, Peter is not filled with the sword of the spirit yet. So he's wielding the sword and uh, doing damage. And I'm... Um, in this, there is an endorsement of self-defense by Jesus Christ. Right? We should not just, look, I'll probably let somebody kill me if that's their intention. Probably. Um, I'm not going to let them send somebody else to hell. There are crazy people in this world, demonically possessed people in this world, who do terrible things. And, uh, you know, if you're going to interfere with somebody's eternity, somebody needs to stop you. Okay? It's not, not right. You know, and, and, and the passive approach of Christians, right? You want to hear Jesus saying, you know, look, the sword was the handgun of the day. It was. A concealed weapon. And for Jesus to say, it's okay for you to buy a sword, right? He didn't say, okay, everyone arm themselves and then let's go kill all the heathens. He didn't say that. He didn't say that, right? You want to send me to my Lord? I'm probably not going to interfere. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Check out of this world and check into the presence of my heavenly father. I'm, I'm probably not. And I definitely don't want to send you straight to hell, right? I mean, if you're out of your mind, crazy, devilish, you know, I'd hate to you know, assign you to an eternity separated from my heavenly father. That would be a horrible thought. But if, if you're going to just destroy families and send people to hell and do all kinds of terrible things, somebody's got to stop you. Somebody's got to step in, intervene. And Jesus gives endorsement here. Right? I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Uh, yeah, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, 
knowledge of the word of God, don't even bother picking up that other sword. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to make a bad decision. You're going to do terrible things. So be first, be first filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, wield the sword. You know, now move to a just a spiritual discussion on this matter. Uh, the word of God is that sword spoken of by Paul. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you wield the word of God, you can accomplish great things in the kingdom. If you are a serious student of the Bible, but you are not filled with his Holy Spirit, you're probably going to cut a lot of people's ears off. That's probably what you're going to do. Going to go around swinging that heavily sharpened King James version with the cross reference and just hack people to pieces. <laughs> you know, it's not what the Lord wanted, right? Much better to just keep it in the sheath and show people that you love them. Don't, don't even draw the sword. Just demonstrate that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, just just talk to them on a on a on a friendship basis. I don't know how many people have made comment, you know, to me in that regard. Of you know, you're a Christian, you're a pastor. I thought I was just gonna you were gonna sermonize me to death. You know, instead I just want to talk. What are you interested in? You know, what is it you do? Where do you work? What is it? You know, what are your hobbies? What are your you know what do you do in life? Just talk to them. About their person. Do they want to talk about the Lord? Do they want to talk about the scripture? You know, they don't have those conversations with them. We very often just hack off the ears. So consider what the Lord might be saying to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 26 verse 52. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's another thing to apply to self-defense and owning your own weapon you know live by the sword you're going to die by the sword or do you think that i cannot pray to my father who will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels how then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus i have to be crucified jesus is saying if i wanted to stop this from happening i could stop this from happening you know 12 legions of angels Okay, so so at a minimum, that's 72,000 angels. Okay, there, there's a few different ways to calculate, you know, what legion are we talking about. But at a minimum, 72,000 angels. I'll remind us that in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, the Assyrian army has amassed and besieged Jerusalem. And it says that it came to pass on a certain night that the angel, singular, of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Syrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were their corpses all dead. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single night, right? 72,000 angels, uh, the entire planet would be wiped out, literally. That's enough to take care of the entire population of planet Earth. 72,000 angels, right? Jesus is allowing himself to become your sacrifice. No one's overwhelming him. No one's overpowering him here in this moment. 
further evidence here in the garden that Jesus is submitting himself to this crucifixion comes from John 18, verse 6, where this mob shows up and John records for us that Jesus says to them, uh, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he uses the phrase that God used when he spoke to Moses. Moses said, who do I tell Pharaoh and the leaders of Israel you in the burning bush are? You're sending me to go tell them to take the people of Israel and free them from Egypt. Who do I go tell them sent me? And, and there the Lord says, I am. And from that point forward, the nation of Israel knows God as the I am. And there's a great history behind that for the nation of Israel. What is your need? You know, I need food. I am your supplier of food. You know, what is it that you need? I need protection from this army. I am your protector. This is how God becomes known to them. I am your everything. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am all things for you. I am God. He, he, he becomes known as the I am. So much so that the nation of Israel shirked away from using that on themselves. They, they changed their, their language in such a way that they would commonly not say I am in any setting. Right? They wouldn't say I am going to work. They would simply say going to work. I am going to the store. They would say, going to the store. They developed this phraseology to avoid using the term I am. Jesus uses it a couple times during his trial and blows everybody's mind, right? Here, who are you looking for? John 18, 6, as soon as uh, he said unto them, I am, they all fell backward to the ground. 600 Roman soldiers, all of the palace guard, with them, Judas probably amongst the group. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Boom, they're all on the ground. Keep in mind, right, they've shown up with swords and torches. Probably people got cut and burned. If you're in a mob of 600 heavily armed people with firebrands in their hands, Probably people are patting out flames when they come up off the ground. And Jesus is basically saying, are we ready to go now? Because I'm ready to go. All the way to the cross. A submission, a remarkable submission to this whole process. Mark 14, 48, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me but the scripture must be fulfilled i wonder if jesus pointed right at certain people who had seen him speaking in the temple and were part of the conspiracy that's now going on you know did he look right at certain people and say i was with you Every day in the temple, you could have seized me at any point. I wonder, right? I've felt that way in sermons where the pastor's just 
speaking the sermon. But I'm convinced that guy's pointing right at me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, uh, he's got my house and my car bugged because there's no way that he could know the stuff that he's talking about right now. Jesus is saying things that you know they, they cut through them much more deeply than Peter's sword did Malchus. It, it is piercing their hearts. Then they all forsook him and fled. Exactly what Jesus said was going to take place. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. Listen, pray for your spiritual leadership, me and others included, because Satan is always looking to strike the shepherds. Whatever church, whatever ministry you're involved in, if you can strike the shepherds, right? Temptation is one of the ways, right? But, you know, lies, accusations, all kinds of things, scatter the flock. And we talked about that recently, how this is how the predators attack the flock. Just charge, and when they scatter everywhere, then go after the weak. Pick them off. You don't go after the strong, right? Because the strong can turn around and drive their head right into whatever predator's coming. Can time very well and kick and drive the predator off. They go after the young and the sick and the weak. That's who gets destroyed in the process. Pray for your shepherds and your leadership. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. The young young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. That's John, right? Uh, that, uh, or excuse me, Mark, rather. That, that is uh, uh, making that confession about himself. Okay, and, and it isn't it isn't to lend to us uh, any sort of. Um, uh, he's not just doing that f- for dramatic effect. He's doing it as a humble confession. Of I, I, I mean, imagine. Imagine what it would take for you to flee any location without your clothes. Okay? This young man is saying, that's the level of coward I was. I I thought less about protecting my own person than, than protecting even my dignity. I just ran away from the situation fled out of there. This is this is an honest confession. Sometimes when we uh, tell the story of our past, we try to we try to uh, dress it up. John Mark leaves it naked. Tells it the way it is. If we're going to tell the stories about our sinful past that uh, make us sound brave, Make us sound exciting. Make sure you also include the ones that make you look like the dirtbag you were. You know, there's no pride in our sin. There's nothing exceptional about our behavior. 1453, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. That's the Sanhedrin. Right? This is the high court. And they're assembled here at the high priest's home. That's illegal. 
Totally illegal. Not implied. We're not interpreting that through the lens of history. That is against the law, right? Imagine getting arrested in the middle of the night, which was illegal, by the way. No arrest to take place in the middle of the night. Arrested in the middle of the night, and then you're not taken to jail and you're not taken to court. You're taken to somebody's house and you're put on trial in their living room? Something's dramatically wrong with this scenario. And that's exactly what's going on here. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. With the servants. That's going to come up in this a couple times. We're going to run out of time uh, this evening. But uh, remember, right, he just hacked the ear off from one of the high priest's servants. So, so uh, you can imagine, think of it like employment, right? You're, you're a servant. So you got your fellow employees, your fellow servants. Imagine how fast word is going to spread amongst the employees. You know, Malchus, guess what? He got his ear hacked off. Everybody's right away. This is going to spread through the employees, through the servants very quickly. So that becomes part of the confrontation with Peter. Hey, hey, <laughs> your sword looks like it's got a little blood on it there, pal. You know what I'm saying? Or just, you know, the, the description, the, the Galileans, the fact that they're all, you know, they all have heavy down east accents. You know, they're all from the same, they really have a northern accent, northern accent but they're, they're all of the same town and region. And they even make that point. Your accent betrays you in the moment. So he comes, he goes right in to where the servants warm uh, himself at the fire. Uh, John 18, 15 records Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple. That's John, the author of the book of John. Now the disciple who knew the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. John's family was a prominent fishing business family in the region. Uh, so John's family probably did business with the household of the priest. And John makes a confession that the, the household uh, of the high priest knew John and knew his family. So there's a familiarity there. Uh, 1455. And now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Totally against the law. Okay? Totally against the law. Chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sanhedrin are not allowed by law to seek testimony. You are the public. You know of something that's been done illegally. You can bring them the information, they can formulate a trial and try that person, but they can't go around and ask for witnesses at all, right? It's understood within the culture and within the law, right, that even if there are more witnesses, you need, you need to collect them and bring them with you when you go to them because they're not going to say, oh, so you heard about this thing? Who else heard about it? They're not, they're not going to ask that question. It's against the law for them to, they don't conduct investigations. They don't, they don't inquire witnesses. They don't subpoena anyone. 
if they're going to have a trial, it's because the evidence is going to be brought to them. God's law, God's culture is very much focused on the idea that you need to, if you're going to accuse somebody of something, it needs to be from the mouth of two or three witnesses. People need to have seen and need to have knowledge of those circumstances and bring it to the authorities. Authorities aren't prowling around looking. So arrest Jesus at night, illegal. Bring him into somebody's living room to conduct a trial, illegal. Send out inquiry. Try to gather more evidence against Jesus, illegal. They're breaking the law over and over and over again in this process uh, to try and put Jesus uh, to death. So uh, they, they find none, verse 56. Uh, many bore false witness against him but their testimonies did not agree. I'll talk about that a little more. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Right? Why? Well, because uh, what actually was said, we have recorded in John chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, right? Destroy this temple, right? The way that's recorded seems to indicate that he was like pointing to himself because it was understood by some that were present that he was talking about his body. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he did that. He raised himself from the dead. 1460, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, do you answer nothing? What is these what is it these men testify against you but he kept silent and answered nothing because jesus is following the law it was actually illegal for again another point of legality for someone to testify on their own behalf for or against themselves what do you have to say for yourself that was never asked in these courts right it had to be that two or three witnesses brought accusation. Okay? It, 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 somebody, you say somebody killed somebody, you got to come and say, I witnessed it take place. You can't say, I saw him with bloody clothes later. It, that does not apply. In this culture, you had to be witnessed. People had to come forward and say, I have not. You could say, this man got drunk and told me all about when he killed his neighbor. You could testify in that regard, okay? But you couldn't bring somebody in and ask them to testify for or against themselves. So, so this man making this insistence this way, he's going to change that here in the next verse. But in the moment, what he's asking Jesus to do, it's against the law. Jesus is just keeping silent. Uh, 61, again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Okay, so uh, Matthew chapter 26, 
verse 63 tells us the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? So, so now this, putting him under oath regarding his ministry is something the high priest was allowed to do. Okay? If, if someone rose up declaring themselves to be a prophet, right? then the high priest had authority to endorse or renounce a ministry, right? The high priest could tell everyone in Israel, do not listen to that man, he's a false teacher. He had the authority uh, to put a ministry up or to take a ministry down. So for him, you remember uh, when they came to Jesus and they said, uh, Jesus had just cast out a demon and they it says they came from Jerusalem, and when they witnessed him doing this, they said, yes, he casts out demons, but he does it by the power of Beelzebub. Remember when that took place? It, it tells us that their coming from Jerusalem was actually a moment of uh, approving or renouncing Jesus' ministry. They were, they were there uh, trying to discredit and when they arrive, he's in the midst of casting out a demon, and that's why they take the approach that they do. Because they're supposed to show up and say, this ministry is hereby condemned. <laughs> and they show up, and he's just cast out a demon. So they're like, darn, uh, you know, <laughs> he just did something awesome. Um, okay, so, well, but he, yes, he did it, but it was by the power of the devil. So they're renouncing his ministry, and this is similar from the high priest in the moment. I put you under oath. Uh, I want you to answer us right now. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? Jesus said, I am. There it is again. Okay. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I, I, I said, we're going to wrap this up, but I just want to get to this point. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. And the blasphemy he's referring to is twofold. Number one, he said, I am. Okay, you just claimed the title of God. That's what Jesus did. I am. Secondly, he said that he was the son of God. Okay. For American Christians, sometimes that's a little confusing, but uh, I, I go the simple approach, right? Dogs give birth to dogs. Fish give birth to fish. Human beings give birth to human beings. God gives birth to God. And that's how the high priest and everyone present took it. Okay, Jesus couples the title of God, I am, together with Son of God. I am God, he said to their faces. And the priest doesn't say it's sacrilegious. He says it's blasphemy. You've just blasphemed God. Tears his clothes. Note takers, Leviticus 21 10 specifically says he who is high priest among his brethren on whose head the anointing oil was poured 
and who is consecrated to wear the garments of the priesthood shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Forbidden for the high priest. And this was a common sign of ultimate grief within the Jewish culture, right? You find out that your loved one is dead. They would rent their clothes, right? And and when people would see you in the coming days with a big Frankenstein zipper stitch where that was sewn back together, they would recognize, oh my gosh, well, you know, what a state of mourning that, you know, you only had, the poorer people had one garment. Right. If you were a little more wealthy, you would have two garments. It was only the incredibly wealthy that had many garments. So to tear your clothing was a sign of ultimate grief. And the Lord specifically forbid the, the, the Levite priest will never tear his garments. It was supposed to symbolize the fact that this high priest always finds his comfort in God and could never be grieved to that degree. God is his all in all, and while everyone else in the nation may lose their mind and fall into grief, that high priest should never experience that. He demonstrates to the nation we can always rely upon God. This one tears his garments. It's the end of the priesthood. As much as the garment was torn, the veil was torn. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake, the rocks split when Jesus said, it is finished. The priesthood of Aaron is finished. It's finished right here in the moment when this high priest tears his garments. You don't ever have to have anyone, and I mean anyone, be the mediator between you and God. That has been removed. Jesus Christ is freely accessible to you. The Holy of Holies has been opened to you and I. You can enter the presence of the Lord and present your need and your request. Knock, seek, ask directly of God. You don't have to call me up, ask me to pray for you. Call me up and do it. I'll, I'll pray for you. What I'm going to do is teach you that you can go to God. Right? Jesus said, call no man on earth your spiritual father. He even went as far as to say, call no man on earth your teacher. For you have one teacher, which is the Christ. Right? You know, feeder, pastor, teaching us the word of God. We are brothers and sisters. That's what we're doing here, examining the words of our heavenly father. As we look at this together, the Lord is acceptable to you. Just to close it out, 1465 says, Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And again, if you've never noticed it before, why strike him with the palms of the hands? Right? Oh, because they wanted to hit him legally. Okay? To clench your fist and strike with your knuckles was, uh, by biblical law, excessive. So if in anger you were to strike someone, which it is, right? Uh, it is. Even in our law today, we still have that taken from biblical law. If you clench your fist and you strike someone, that is a different degree of salt in the state of Maine and most states 
in our nation than if you strike them with the open hand. Okay? Uh, not that you care, right? Mixed martial arts instructors will tell you to strike with the palm of your hand. It's as devastating a blow to the recipient, and it's far less damaging to you and to them. Same amount of impact, right? But you get that nice padding right there. And upon it, God was the origin of that. Think about how stupid it is. This is their Messiah, and they're beating him. And in the process of beating him, they're like, oh, we should, when we beat him, let's make sure we do it in a legal manner. Yeah, we broke the law and arrested him in the middle of the night. We broke the law and took him to Caiaphas' house. We broke the law and brought false witnesses. We've broken the law. We've broken the law. We broke. But when we hit him, let's make sure we do it in a legal way. Before we scourge him, before we crucify him. It, it, you're going to see that in, in the world where people try to justify their behavior as they mistreat the children of God and his servants. Uh, we're seeing it happen more and more all around us. We need to be prepared. Be prepared. Like if Jesus suffered this much, he's the one who said it. They're going to mistreat you also. And so uh, we need to wear it as a badge of honor, right? They rejoice in the book of Acts when they're found worthy to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. So as we're seeing the world change around us, don't be disheartened, right? All of these things must take place in order for the end to come. Do we not long for the return of our Lord? Do we not long for the fulfillment of all of his promises? Then we've got to go through the junk too. So, you know, same as Jesus. You fix your face toward the goal and you trust him moment by moment through the process and hopefully it won't be too overwhelming and grueling. But if it does get that ugly, then we walk through it with him. Amen? Amen. So uh, we'll pick up there uh, next week, God willing. If the Lord tarries, hopefully he won't. Hopefully we'll, we'll meet, you know, in Calvary Chapel in the early days, as they parted ways from one another, they would often say, here, there, or in the air, you know. So uh, that's the hope, however the Lord uh, sees fit to deliver it to us. Amen? Uh, let's stand. We'll pray. Father God, we are very, very grateful for your love and your grace in our lives, and we ask that you would continue to work in each one of our hearts. Lord, we're very much like the apostles who fell asleep in the garden, Lord. Life is overwhelming. Circumstances can be discouraging. Help us, Lord, to not rely upon the flesh. That our hearts would call out to you. That we would ask, seek, and knock. That your spirit would strengthen us. That you would change us all the more into the image of your son. Use us as your servants. Use us as your instruments. See your kingdom come and your will being done on earth, even as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.